The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of the Lord. So buckle up, people. We got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Before we get started, I do want to say first off that you need not be intimidated by any references to biblical names or stories in this sermon. I am not assuming any pre-existing biblical knowledge. While it might help, I do unpack the basics of some stories. And at any rate, this sermon is more about general prevailing truths, both human and divine which just so happen to manifest themselves in Bible stories. So no worries. Don't get hung up on names and places and so on. So hold on. Let's go. School has started. And with the onset of a new school year comes the fresh stirrings of excitement, anticipation, renewed commitment to academics, athletics, the arts, and other such lofty pursuits. LCM kicked off on Thursday with over 30 students, which is very exciting, mostly freshmen, who largely come from small towns across the Midwest to make friends, study hard, and figure out who they are supposed to be in this great big world. But along with excitement, anticipation, and a renewed commitment to academics, athletics, the arts, and other lofty pursuits, comes another element, but this one is not so enjoyable and not so welcome. In fact, it is a scary beast lurking in the corner of all of our lives. That beast has a name, and it is called insecurity. The young are plagued by insecurity even before they know the name for it, and the old are all too familiar with insecurity, having battled it our entire lives. When you're little, you worry about who will play with you during recess, which gives way to what others gossip about you in the hallway, which gives way to who will greet you at your kid's sporting event, which gives way to whether or not you'll get invited to this party or that reception, and so on. Since childhood, we all know the gnawing ache of insecurity. Jesus touches the very heart of insecurity with a question that he asks in this morning's gospel. What are other people saying about me? In my experience, this is the most terrifying question a person can ask. 
because no one really wants to know how they're talked about when they're not around. Just look at a person's expression at a party when you meet them and say to them, I've heard a lot about you. People go pale, and they either stammer some sort of apology and run away, or else they make the claim, none of it's true. Human insecurity has been around since the dawn of history. Take a look at our first reading as a prime example of human insecurity run amok. So the book of Genesis has just ended. It reaches a very tidy conclusion with the resolution of that Jacob drama, if you remember that whole mess. At the end of Genesis, Jacob dies peacefully. And Jacob's son, Joseph, dies peacefully and is buried in Egypt, giving the immigrant Israelites roots in the land of Egypt. The remaining brothers are reconciled with each other. Basically, everyone is getting along, living comfortably as an immigrant people in Egypt. And so Genesis ends with all of those loose threads tied up, which we like. Then, But then the book of Exodus begins, and there's a new sheriff in town. The first words of our first reading this morning. Now a new king arose. Seems insignificant, and one could easily overlook these words, but the attentive listener knows that the story is about to take a dramatic turn, and a bad one at that. There's a new king, a new sheriff in town. And although this sheriff might have a swagger in his step, he's oozing with insecurity. Now, the Bible says that this new king does not know Joseph, which is, to use the biblical term, a bunch of malarkey. This new sheriff either didn't read this particular chapter in his history book on how Joseph and his immigrant family worked hard during a terrible famine to keep the Egyptians alive, or else this new king is simply choosing to ignore that chapter. But this king is not the first revisionist historian to hold a position of power, is he? Nor is he the first leader to turn on a minority population and encourage his nation to do likewise. Is he? So anyway, this new Egyptian king turns on the same immigrant Israel population that kept his very own people alive during a terrible famine, and now the question looms. What will happen now to these immigrants, to these Israelites? For the king has identified that they are now a threat. The answer to that question is the same as it is in every single history book. If you cannot build a wall to keep whomever your perceived threat is out because they're already living in your land, you have no choice but to make their lives unbearable, and if that doesn't work, kill them. This insecure Egyptian king then embarks on a hate campaign that stirs up suspicion and fear of the Israelites. Sound familiar? That new sheriff sounds like another new sheriff that we might be familiar with today, one that lives in the White House. Alas, the Bible 
then is both ancient and contemporary. So, the Egyptian king enslaves the Israelites and makes their lives bitter with hard service. But they prove to be hard and resilient workers. So then the, the king's plot darkens, and he says, If I can't work them to death, I will kill their baby boys so they cannot reproduce. The king is that insecure. By the way, this is like one of three times in the Bible where women are shown preferential treatment, where women, girl babies are not killed but the boy babies are. But here's where a very interesting resistance begins. With the Egyptian midwives, whom the king has ordered to kill Israelite boys the moment that they're born, but these defiant women refuse to participate in the king's murderous plan, and this spreads to other women, and the resistance grows. Once the Israelite women have birthed their babies and can no longer hide them, they put them in the river and they float them downstream, away from the rampant racism that is threatening their lives. And one day, an Israelite man marries an Israelite woman, and they have a baby boy, and they hide him. And when they can no longer hide him, they put him in a basket, and they float him down the river, and he is found and saved by the Egyptian king's very own daughter, a bold act of resistance to her father's monstrosity. And she rescues the child from the river, and she names him Moses, and this is the same Moses who grows up strong and powerful, and God orders him to go and confront the Egyptian king and demand the release of his people, the Israelites. But Moses says, no thanks. No thanks, God. I can't possibly confront the Egyptian king and lead the Israelites to freedom because, you see, I'm terrified of public speaking, so I'm afraid I'm not your guy. Moses says, No thanks. God says, you're the man. Moses says, no thanks. God says, I'm losing patience with you. Take your brother Aaron. He will be your mouthpiece. Tell him what to say, and he'll say it. Just go. And then we have the plagues, and we have the chase through the Red Sea with the Egyptian army of chariots close on the heels of the Israelites. This is that great leader, Moses, shared by three world religions who escapes death because he's scooped out of a river because of an equally insecure king who cannot tolerate people who are different from him. This is the great Moses, so terrifyingly insecure to speak a single public word to his very own people. But he eventually does. And one day, the insecure Israelite Moses comes face to face with the equally insecure Egyptian king and says, let my people go. Phew. What a whirlwind that was. Why in the world did we need to blast through biblical history from Jacob to Moses? Which, by the way, you just did. Well, I think, number one, because it's a very cool story. If you're ever at a party and there's a lull, (laughs) you can pull out the story of Moses, which might guarantee you'll never get invited back, but it's a good story. And secondly, mostly you had to listen to that story because it shot through with human insecurity on both sides, and that's interesting. And the fascinating drama between the Egyptian king and the Israelite Moses both suffer from the same almost debilitating insecurity. The king is willing to commit genocide 
to protect his throne. Moses refuses God's command to confront the king because of his terror of of speaking in public. What this reveals, then, is the villain and the hero fall under the same law. That is to say, both the villain and the hero are both fully human. Whatever side of life you find yourself on, the villainous or the heroic, you are also fully human with all of the things that go along with being human, including insecurity. This week we saw an amazing solar eclipse. Did you see it? It's an amazing solar eclipse. And then we saw a presidential retweet of him eclipsing Obama. Whether you like the man or not, I cannot imagine a more blatant display of human insecurity. Forget the fact that this reveals a failure to grasp the basic scientific fact that in the case of a solar eclipse, the smaller object eclipses the larger, and that all eclipses, no matter how much attention they demand, are temporary. We can use the same biblical template to look at our own modern context. Trump and Obama fall under the same human law that we do. That is to say, they are both fully human with all of the things that go along with being human. That is to say, both are insecure in their own ways, as are we. But here's the thing. When we let our insecurities threaten and dominate others, when we use our insecurities to harm or stir up suspicion of other people, we sin. However, when we use our insecurities as an opportunity to glorify other people and lift them up, that pleases God. This is what Paul is talking about today. He says, hey, we all have different gifts. You're the teacher, you're the student. You're the leader, you're the follower. I'm that, you're this, different. Can we recognize that we are different from one another without being threatened by that difference? Can we celebrate, not tolerate, celebrate our diversity without caving in to insecurity? Yes, we can. We try. We try to do this in the church. Sometimes we fail, but sometimes we succeed, and when we succeed, we catch a beautiful glimpse of the reign of God, where the Egyptian king and the Israelite leader kneel at the same table to receive the same body and the same blood of Christ. Evil insecurity kneeling side by side with righteous insecurity, where both confess and both are forgiven. From the beginning, the whole human drama is shot through with insecurity. That's how it goes. From the story of Adam and Eve, to the story of Jacob and Esau, to the story of Joseph and his brothers, to the story of Moses and the Egyptian king, all the way right up to today, all the way up to you and me. What do people say about you when you're not around? How do people speak about you when you leave the room? The things others said about Jesus when he wasn't around led to his crucifixion, and he was fully human, like us in every single way, but he was also God. And so he takes our human insecurities to the cross where they are put to death, meaning it is not your insecurities that define you, it is your identity that defines you. What do others say about you when you're not around? Who cares? You cannot control their words, but you can control yours, and your actions in this world to be just. 
love kindness, show generosity, embody empathy, embrace the marginalized, lift up the lowly, walk humbly with God. When you are this in this world, when you leave the room and others ask the question, who is that? The answer will be, that's a child of God. And that's enough.